Indonesia the subject of today's Fiona show, as a tax jurisdiction can be a land of contradictions. Hand in your local and master file within seven days upon request, but your CBCR, yeah, take your time and follow OECD guidelines. But is Indonesia even a member of the OECD? I'm seeing here that they have something called an enhanced participation status, which we'll get into, but it's a little like saying they're not not a member, I guess. Welcome, everyone. My name is Matthew DeMello, your host of The Fiona Show, Cross-Border Solutions Transfer Pricing Podcast. I'm going to be joined today by our Transfer Pricing University webinar rock star and Cross-Border Solutions own Chief Economist Mimi Song talking about this very unique jurisdiction. In speaking of academic credentials, you can earn CPE credits just for listening to this podcast. Here's how it works. We're planting three CPE code words throughout the course of this show. Send all three to the Fiona Show at xbs.ai. One more time, all one word. That's the Fiona Show at xbs.ai. But first, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. The numbers are rising, and for once, we're not talking about COVID cases. According to the OECD, disagreements between governments and multinationals are on the up and up. Between 2018 and 2019, there was a 20% increase in the use of Mutual Agreement Procedure, or MAP. To settle transfer pricing disagreements, the OECD shared the less-than-celebratory news at an online tax event titled Tax Certainty Day with over 60 nations in attendance. Germany leads the pack with the largest number of MAP cases pending, a little over 1,200 to be exact. Not exactly stats you want to raise a stein to. The United States, India, France, and Italy also make the list of top MAP caseload countries, respectively. While the OECD had to be the bearer of bad news, it also got to be the bearer of good news at the event it awarded countries that had demonstrated effective cross-border tax dispute resolution. Japan and the UK tied for the award of fastest transfer pricing case completion in 2019, averaging 21 months. Switzerland was a close second with 23 months. Here's a story of interest, both literally and figuratively. BlackRock has come out on top in its appeal against the UK tax authority. Here's a legal refresher. Back in 2009, BlackRock acquired Barclays Global Investors using $4 billion in loans. Where did that money come from? This is where it gets interesting. The U.S. parent company created BlackRock Holdco 5 LLC, a Delaware-based company that was also a U.K. tax resident, to provide the loan notes. Between 2010 and 2015, BlackRock requested tax deductions in the U.K. for any loan amount over $1 billion. Let's just say that Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, also known as HMRC was not pleased. The department took the private equity firm to court to reject the interest deductions on the $4 billion. Long story short, first-tier tribunal ruled that the borrowing sum and interest rate did in fact reflect arm's length. The group was awarded $1 billion in tax relief, and what a relief it was. A soft drink takes a hard bow. Coca-Cola Company lost its nearly five-year legal battle against the Internal Revenue Service. The damage, a $3.3 billion tax bill. Coca-Cola had allowed operating plants in Ireland, Brazil, and Mexico, among other jurisdictions, to pay reduced rates for intellectual property, which increased taxable income there and decreased it in the United States. The U.S. tax court ruled that the IRS was right to reallocate 
royalty income for trademarks and other intangible assets to the U.S. from foreign affiliates. The court also agreed with the agency's recalculation of Coca-Cola's taxable income for 2007 to 2009, which ended up totaling over $9 billion. Gulp. Surprisingly, the beverage giant is getting a slight reprieve. The court acknowledged the company's dividend offset treatment to honor royalty requirements, which will ultimately knock $1.8 billion off their tab. While the verdict is a kick in the pants for Coca-Cola, it's a landmark case for the IRS and serves as a learning lesson for multinationals. Remember, don't shake the transfer pricing can if you can't handle the fizz. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai tpu. Hello, everyone. We're back with Cross-Border Solutions Chief Economist Mimi Song, this time talking about Indonesia as a jurisdiction. Mimi, thanks so much for being with us again. Thank you, Matthew. Always a pleasure. Mutually as well, Mimi. Now, we talk a lot or we have talked a lot on this podcast and in our TPU courses about your larger career in transfer pricing. Going back and taking that big picture view, how do you feel technology has streamlined the documentation process over that time? Well, it, it's funny because I started my, uh, you know this, but maybe everyone doesn't remember this, but I started my transfer pricing career at cross-border solutions, the first iteration, right? In the early 2000s and really in 2000. And so I always thought technology was naturally a part of transfer pricing. You would think that all the companies that are doing, that are actively managing transfer pricing documentation requirements, even back then, even when it was a lot easier, that there would be a focus to streamline efforts, processes on how people do things. And technology I mean, the, the big technology boom was in the 90s, right? Like it was in the 80s and 90s. And so always naturally assumed that technology was a part of that. Now, you fast forward and that antiquated technology is no longer as relevant as the concepts of artificial intelligence, machine learning. And we're not talking about like, what was that, what was that um, comparison you made before? iRobot. Artificial intelligence. Yes. Haley Joel Osment. AI with Haley Joel (laughs) Osment, a very underrated movie. Yeah. But that's not the AI we're talking about. It's not the scary, like, replace humans AI. It's it's just facilitated learning, right? And it's the ability to look at massive amounts of data and identify trends. That's what we're talking about here, right? And so technology has always been a part of my transfer pricing career. And then when I went to 
you know, the more traditional type of firm and understanding that, holy crap, everyone's still doing their documentation using Word docs and they're not actually sharing information between the same types of groups within the same company or building tools to create efficiencies. I, I thought to myself, I got to get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, you know, and I, and I did other things. And, and then even when I went to MUFG Union Bank, it's funny because in, on the industry side, I feel like most industries, uh, most people can empathize with this. They're always behind on a technology front. Like even if it's, uh, you're talking about a computer, word processing. Like when I went to um, MUFG Union Bank, there was still a typewriter in the what? office. I looked, wow. Yeah, and I looked at my my predecessor who was still there. We were overlapping for about a month. And I said, oh, you still have this typewriter here. Wow, how long has this been here? And he's like, well, to be honest, I was pretty much using that up until about three years ago. And I was like, what? Wow, <laughs> I cannot think of another office I've ever been in where anything that existed before the year 2009 was even tolerated from a software standpoint. But in speaking of software, I was listening back to the episode we did with Don Scherer, CEO of Cross Border Solutions. I think this is episode four, and we discuss in depth the AI technology. And just to put a finer point on what people mean by AI, uh, this is technology that is still incapable of making judgment calls or having a degree of understanding that can be described as subjective. And that appears to be the principal difference as of right now between technology that we might describe as self-learning and saying that this machine is capable of things that previously only humans were capable of. Agreed. I mean, I think that we're not talking about the ability to make the right decision, right? It's machines and data processing and all that. It's the ability to identify what would be considered logical decisions. And that's not always right, but it at least makes sense in the context of looking at all the historical data points. And then so, so we are talking about, at least from our company perspective, the ability to to intersect human intelligence and artificial intelligence and to make sure that we're making the most well-informed decisions that are going to meet those local requirements and put any company's facts and circumstances in the best light possible. Of course. And just to underscore why technology alone will never be able to do transfer pricing. I think I speak for all transfer pricing professionals out there that we know tax authorities don't normally think logically. So you can't really build a pure artificial intelligence that can account for all of the cockamamie reasons that they would want some things one way over the other. So at the end of the day, you're going to need humans involved no matter what. Agreed. And that's the truth, right? Not people are not as logical as computers. Like, but like I said, sometimes the logical answer does not always equal the right answer. That's right. What obstacles have you observed that stop companies from embracing technology in this space? So, I mean, I think first and foremost, cost is always a huge factor because a lot of the the powerful technology that people want to integrate. You're talking about very bespoke 
architectural frameworks that cost millions of dollars to plug into the ERP system and create a, a sort of self-sustaining loop of processes, right, with very minimal human intervention. I mean, I've spoken with people in the transfer pricing and tax space a lot at these different conferences, and it's everyone always has this idea that's like there's this dream out there, <laughs> the dream that says, hey, man, wouldn't it be great if you could have an institute technology to be able to pull the data directly from the data warehouses that we have, whether or not that's cloud or on-site servers, and then get that information and feed that into the transfer pricing calculation engine, and then fit out the entries, get that recorded, and then all of that feeds into documentation, and then you know, at the end of the year, you, you can just click download a report and you would be done. I mean, I think it's a really, it's still a, a thought that people are like, wow, that's, that would be incredible if we can get there. But I think, like I said, biggest obstacles, number one is cost, because it's very expensive to do that. And number two is just understanding what's out there to be able to do that, right? And not a lot of companies know how to do that or understand their data well enough to be able to get there. I mean, we're already talking about a situation where multinational companies are growing so large so quickly through acquisition. They already have a hard enough time integrating their underlying ERP systems, right? And then to be able to layer on tax technology into that mix, it is difficult. Tax sometimes is treated like the ugly stepchild, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, uh, always a place that if you're hearing from it a lot, it's probably not good news. Right. It's always looked at as a cost center. So they, you say, I'd like to spend more costs and they'd be like, no. Right. But I mean, but things are changing. Right. And I think that there are um taxes now has an opportunity to bring a lot more value to the organization as opposed to just looking at it, things from a compliance perspective. And, and technology has advanced far enough that the integration of the technology into the underlying systems, the connection points, the way that data is manipulated, uh, and the way that you can fold technology into the daily processes has evolved. And it's becoming much more flexible, I think, and, and, and it's becoming more for people to have these expectations of what this future target state or ideal state would look like. Right, right. Even if you get rid of your typewriters, which I should mention is official policy here at Cross Border Solutions, <laughs> just be done with them. But just more to your point, I think when it comes to the cost conversation and technology, it's important to remember this is an arms race. This isn't going away. The risk isn't decreasing. And by its nature, yes, there are situations where technology may end up being a cost center, but by its own very nature, technology over time, things end up costing less. Right. Or or people get numb to how much it costs and they were willing to dish out over a thousand dollars for a new cell phone. <laughs> right, right, right. All right. It's crazy, isn't it? It is crazy. And I say that as somebody who used to sell cell phones at a Target mobile kiosk around 10 years ago. So I'm a, a little familiar with the dynamic. But turning to the subject of today's podcast, let's start at the top. How likely is it that a multinational's transfer pricing will be audited in Indonesia? So 
I do think that Indonesia is a high-risk jurisdiction. I think Indonesia is high-risk for several different factors. First of all, it is considered an emerging market economy, right? And sometimes in those types of jurisdictions, there's more risk because of a lack of baseline understanding of the arms length principle. Now, that may not necessarily be the case in Indonesia, though. I think it also is high-risk because they have a better understanding these days of the transfer pricing requirements, they become a lot more rigid when it comes to transfer pricing requirements. And they also require everything in the local language. And they have been active in the space to articulate that transfer pricing is a big deal for their jurisdiction. And anytime a taxpayer wants to apply for a, a tax refund, that's going to trigger an automatic audit. I mean, that's, that's basically like, you trying to take money out of my pocket? No, 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 no. Let's let's take a look at this. Uh, we got to look at this in more detail. And they have put dedicated teams specifically on these transfer pricing related cases, and so they they're they're taking a very focused approach um, to to auditing a company's transfer pricing regimen. In which situations are usually targeted by tax authorities in Indonesia? So I think that um, not necessarily a specific industry per se, but if you are a multinational with ongoing operating losses, clearly that's going to raise some eyebrows. So if you have ongoing continuous losses, the Indonesian tax authority, which is the Directorate General of Taxes, okay, the DGT will refer to them going forward. They're gonna look at companies because with continuous losses, because from a business perspective, they're not expecting companies to make losses, right? I mean, companies enter, enter certain jurisdictions and they enter into operations to make profits. Then they're also gonna look to see how those companies compare to other companies in similar industries. And if they feel like, you know, we're, all, we're talking about information that's available to them. They're getting tax returns from local jurisdictions. They're also a party to the country by country reporting and from a requirement perspective. So they have all this data. So they're going to look at companies and just at least on a high level assess whether or not a particular entity is in line with the general population, that's going to be a big area of, of risk of being targeted by the DGT. And then they're, they're also going to be very mindful of related parties that are operating in jurisdictions that are considered tax havens. So if you have a, a counterparty transaction with, I, I don't want to pick on them, but you know, the Cayman Islands or the Bahamas, right? So <laughs> that's kind we all love to go on vacation there, but they're not well received from the tax authority perspective. But ultimately, if the counterparty is there, that's going to be cause for concern. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. 
So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross-Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai rd. That's xbs.ai rd. So as I understand it, Indonesia has a process where they assign an account executive with regard to confirming transfer pricing compliance. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So every different taxpayer, they actually get assigned what's considered an account representative. And that person's role now includes confirming that each of those different customers or their accounts are in compliance with the transfer pricing rules and regulations. So they're they're now confirming, hey, do you have your documentation in place? Are, are you operating at arm's length in accordance with your documentation? They're looking at this much more actively. And they're doing a high-level profile, right, from an audit perspective. And this was this is also in line with the goal of the BEPS action plan, which was to educate tax authorities, to provide them with a roadmap in order to audit and target companies appropriately, right? So the account representative actually can propose that the regional tax office conduct a transfer pricing audit. So this is before the audit takes place as opposed to other countries where this figure usually shows up after the audit's been issued. That's right. It's it's someone who is actively monitoring that particular entity. That person or that account rep can tell the tax office, hey, you should audit this company. Right, right. And what does this tell us about how Indonesia views multinationals and transfer pricing? Generally speaking, it just highlights the fact that Indonesia is sensitive to transfer pricing issues that have arisen. They understand that multinationals set up operations locally, perhaps perhaps to take advantage of lower cost alternatives as well as tax arbitrage opportunities. And I think that this is this is a clear indication that transfer pricing is important and that they want to be respected as a tax authority that really has a has a position with respect to intercompany transactions and that they are going to be looking at this closely. And usually when we bring up the OECD, it's a given for the jurisdictions that we've covered so far that they're a member, but Indonesia is not a member of the OECD, but it has, quote, enhanced participation status. What is that? I think this goes to my point just in just a second ago about how how Indonesia, um, while they might not be a direct member of the OECD, They've adopted these requirements. They understand what's happening on a global basis. They understand the challenges that tax authorities are seeing. And now they are endorsing, basically endorsing the principles of the OECD guidelines through this enhanced participation process. They're basically articulating that they they agree with the arm's length principle and the arm's length standard and that 
these enhanced requirements are, are necessary uh, in order to in order to make sure that multinational enterprises are operating properly in each of the different foreign jurisdictions. So I guess it's a way of being an OECD member, but not so much on paper. On paper, that's 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 basically what it is, right? It's and they're they're active. They have an active voice. So versus because they shouldn't be necessarily confused with uh, you know basically the inclusive framework, which is a little bit less res- restrictive in that the inclusive framework expands to even a, a broader list of countries that have to meet certain minimum standards, minimum requirements from a documentation perspective under the best action plan, under the 15 action items, Indonesia is having an active voice. That enhanced participation status, though, doesn't seem to have a large bearing on their participation in BEPS Action 13. They participate fully. Oh, that's right. So so they've they adopted BEPS Action 13. Since December of 2016, they, they adopted the three-tiered approach documentation, right? The master file, local file, and the country-by-country reporting. As it has been in the advent of BEPS since about 2015. Now, does that documentation have to be prepared or submitted in Indonesia? It does have to be prepared, and it has to be prepared contemporaneously. And here's where it gets tricky, because if it has to be prepared contemporaneously, contemporaneous means four months after year end. Get, here's the tricky part of it. Why do you have to prepare contemporaneously? Well, the moment they ask for it, you have four days to provide it. Four days, not four 30, days. but four. Four days. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a very long time to be able to produce that documentation. But they've also made the requirements a little more rigid as well, where you have to provide a statement basically saying that, hey, my documentation is contemporaneous. And then the, the statement, whoever's doing your transfer pricing documentation also needs to basically validate and also and verify that these reports were prepared contemporaneously. There's all these additional layers of control, if you will, where when the DGT, or if and when I should say, the DGT comes to audit the company, number one, you only have four days to submit it, but number two, you're supposed to have all this evidence and sign off that these reports and this analysis was prepared contemporaneously. The subtext there seems to be you better play by the rules. Now, are there differences between the OECD's recommendations on these files or does Indonesia adhere to its own regulations? They, they generally have followed the framework, right? But they still have their own specific nomenclature, regulations, verbiage with respect to the documentation requirements. I mean, I think, and I don't know this 100%, but I'm pretty sure Indonesia was one of the first to take that master file framework that was outlined by the OECD. And in their adoption of that master file, they had added their own enhanced requirements. So they're pretty uh, explicit about what they're looking for. And they're one of the more strict countries that will not just be tolerant of a, a generic OECD transfer pricing document. In interrupting very quickly for our first CPE code word, and that code word is Java, not just as in a cup of coffee, but Java, the island in the Indonesian archipelago, bordered by the Indian Ocean on the south and the Java Sea on the north. Returning to our conversation, so Mimi, what about the country-by-country report? When do you have to file that? So 
Indonesian taxpayers, basically, if, if you are the parent entity of a business group, you have to file the CPCR locally. It's around the same threshold that you see everywhere else, right? You're talking about, you know, around the 750 million euro, 850 million US dollars. Explicitly in Indonesia, it's actually 11 trillion Indonesian rupiah. If the, I think, from a CBCR reporting requirement perspective, it's, it's definitely in line with what you're seeing everywhere. And then if that taxpayer has a foreign parent company, right? It's the same again, right? Euro, 750 million euros, which is roughly 850 million US dollars. You know, and they're going to be a part of the exchange of information agreement and they're going to be able to get visibility into the country for country reporting from the various jurisdictions where the foreign parent company may be filing the country by country reports, right? Apparently, though, there has been some challenges due to some systematic failures about the exchange of information and it, how it couldn't be reviewed by the Indonesian government, which has created some challenges, but just generally, at least from a contractual perspective, they are um, they are a party to the exchange of information notifications. There also appears to be here a very strict language requirement. Yes, Bahasa Indonesia. You know, I had to learn that. I have to be honest. I I, I mean, you know, I didn't transfer pricing in Indonesia was not as as big of an issue pre BEPS. And so I, I just wasn't as exposed to it. And when the BEPS action uh, plan was initiated and, and Indonesia's rules changed, looking at that, I had to ask, like, what is the local language? It's Bahasa. And um, I had my first transfer pricing report in Bahasa in 2017. So. Right, right. And just considering the practicality of learning a language uh, just for those purposes, at the end of the day, this is most likely a skill that companies are putting up or trying to find in a job market. Oh, yeah. No, I have to tell you, and, and this is between us and our audience, that transition was not cheap. So. <laughs> It's a, it's a very unique skill set. Um, we, we, we luckily, I will tell you, we luckily, we had a, a, a fantastic senior analyst who, who had worked in the uh, Indonesian transfer pricing space and who actually was, had immigrated from Indonesia because her husband was uh, studying for his PhD in New York. So it was, that was like luck of the draw. It wasn't even a targeted recruit. So. <laughs> exactly. And this underscores a point we make about technology in that jurisdictions aren't just putting these language requirements out there because they know this talent is easy to find. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, you think about the, the local requirements everywhere. And to be honest, even the traditional accounting firms, it's not like they have a local office everywhere. Right. All of these smaller jurisdictions where it might have an accounting firm name, they're just licensing those names. They are actually not controlled by the bigger company. They just have these, they have brand recognition. They're licensing these names. Um, and so, you know, when you think about Indonesia and the requirements and everything uh, locally, I, you, you can't rely on that antiquated business structure of, of having, you know, boots on the ground and having a, an extension of your multinational locally on-site 
presence to support you from a transfer pricing perspective. You do have to think outside of the box. How are you going to manage those requirements? What's a better way to do it? You know, how are you going to keep up with all the regulations? And, and a lot of that is because of technology. It's because information is free flowing. Communication is there. Like tax authorities are using Twitter. Right. Which means I might be in trouble now. <laughs> anyway, we talked about BEPS and the three-tiered documentation. What does Indonesia mandate about the master file? So they're basically following the OECD master file structure, right? The ownership structure, the charts. Um, they want to know the business activities carried out locally. They want to understand all the intangible assets owned by each of the different business groups. Um, and then they want to know about the different financing activities. Right. That's a big point of contention these days for intercompany transactions. And 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 they want to see the consolidated financial statements of the parent company, as well as information about any outstanding tax rulings, APAs, things of that nature. So it, it, they're they're generally along the same lines of what the OECD has recommended under Action 13. And what about the local file? How does that align or differ from the OECD? So similar information in that they want to understand the intercompany transactions. I think there's more specifics being requested here in terms of the taxpayer's identification number, the local business activities. We're going to always want to put information about the application or the analysis of the arms length principle, right? That's a given in any situation. But I think in terms of additional requirements, you know, if you're dealing with intercompany commodity transactions, you need to have a very focused approach to describing the facts and circumstances around those types of transactions. Um, you want to make sure that you have the contractual terms explicitly outlined. Do you have agreements in place? So, you know, in, this should be in place for all significant related party transactions. And here's where it gets even more interesting. In Indonesia, you have to have a report for every specific legal entity. In some jurisdictions, that local file requirement is acceptable on a country basis where you have all the different transactions within the country. And in some jurisdictions, you have to do it based on entity. And in Indonesia, it's one of those jurisdictions that, that needs that reporting by on an entity basis, right? They want to see the analysis done on an entity level. And does Indonesia require any other disclosures? So they do want a, a summary. They essentially want a summary of the master file and the local file as an attachment to the income tax return. And I think this goes to the statement above about, hey, they want the evidence and they want the sign off that basically says, hey, the documentation was prepared contemporaneously. Um, they're asking about high level components of information that you wouldn't have if you didn't do the report. You need to identify who your counterparties are, what type of transactions, what are the value of the transaction, what was the method being applied, as well as the reason for the application of the method. Now, all of these requests are components of the documentation that you have to identify or explicitly state so that they can validate that, yes, your documentation was actually prepared contemporaneously. And you're, you're essentially declaring it, right? That everything checks off all the boxes um, and it meets those local requirements. 
and coming at everyone suspiciously early for our third and final CPE code word, changing it up on you. And that code word is TER, spelled T-O-E-R, as in Pramudya Anatta Ter, perhaps the most famous Indonesian novelist and perhaps the most easily recognized name among Indonesia's golden age of literature in the 1950s and 60s. And what about the submission of master and local files? I know we were talking before about the very strict and very quick turnover of four days when they ask for general documentation, mm -hmm. but it looks like these requirements are very strict as well. Yeah, I mean, I think the local file, you, you only have four days to submit it. And, and so ultimately, if you don't submit it within that four-day time frame, then you receive a penalty for non-compliance. And, you know, the, the penalty in and of itself is not necessarily the risk factor, right? Like the penalty is just that additional slap on the wrist, be like, well, you didn't comply and, and that sucks. <laughs> and, <laughs> and sometimes from a multinational perspective, they'll say, well, the cost of preparing the documentation is more than the penalty I would absorb. So in some cases, that's true. But I think the risk is if, if you're under audit and you're not submitting this information, not only are you going to get penalized, but the burden of proof has shifted. And you are backed into a corner trying to explain your position to a tax authority that is known to take aggressive positions with respect to the transfer pricing outcomes. and all of a sudden, you know, you, they're proposing assessments and adjustments. Meanwhile, the CBCR standard appears to be standard. It is. It also, it follows the same framework in terms of what the country by country reporting requires, which is all of those quantitative components of information, pre-tax income, headcount, plus the checklist of what type of activities are being performed by each entity. But it, But you also need to include a working paper, which includes the information that you use in the preparation of the transfer pricing documentation. Now, what that is, is just sort of this connection point between the quantitative components of data, your country by country reporting, and how it ties into your qualitative aspects of reporting, which is your transfer pricing documentation, your local file preparation, your master file preparation. And it's just about creating this holistic review of all of that and making sure that I, I think it's a good thing in that it's it's a the requirement in and of itself is probably just best practice for companies that are required to do country by country reporting. And does Indonesia have preferences in terms of transfer pricing methods? They are generally going to follow the same idea that we see um, in, in most jurisdictions, which is pick the method that's going to be the most appropriate given your facts and circumstances, right? However, I have seen that there is sometimes a preference for a cup method in Indonesia. And once again, it's the same idea of, hey, a cup method is the most direct comparison of prices between you and a third party based on market conditions. So if you have that, using that as the basis to compare your related party transactions, it makes a lot of sense. But otherwise it, it hasn't been, I mean, it's not written in stone that that is their preference. It is generally speaking from a regulatory environment, they are 
articulating that they do believe in the, the most appropriate method rule based on the availability of information and based on the, the facts and circumstances. And does Indonesia require local comparables in a benchmarking analysis? They do have a preference and they, they have a preference for local comparables. It's, it's just because of the, the market conditions on the ground. And then if a taxpayer has to expand the list of acceptable comparables in a benchmarking analysis, ultimately they have requested that the expansion should be to the ASEAN region or the nations, which is more so focused on Southeast Asian nations, as opposed to just going Pan-Asian. I think there's there's still a, a, a thought process around what they prefer, local. If not local, then let's try Southeast Asian. And then if there's not enough there, then you can go Asia Pacific. So I think there's this hierarchical thought process of what makes the best type of comparables and it to the extent that you can control for the market conditions, that is ideal. And is it difficult to find local comparables in Indonesia? You know, it's surprisingly easier to find Indonesian comparables than you would have expected. It's, it's kind of like a non-answer. Sorry, Matt. It was like. <laughs> There's another compliance burden with Indonesia. The country requires fresh benchmarking every year, not just a roll forward of financials. How does that complicate compliance for multinationals? So it's always a complication when you want fresh benchmarks every year. Clearly, a lot of multinationals feel as if they don't have the resources or the time or the budget to do benchmark every year. That's been the general feeling, I think, for many multinationals. Now, ideally, though, here's where I think all multinationals would agree that it is ideal to do benchmark analyses and updates on a year-over-year basis. And the only reason that they haven't done that is purely based on time effort, budget constraints. And so Indonesia now taking the position that these benchmarks should be updated every year, they're just taking a hard line on a more rigorous analysis because they know what they're going to have to do when they audit a company. They're going to audit them and they're going to have to recreate that benchmark based on that particular time. They understand market fluctuations. And so if that's what they're going to have to do, they're basically telling taxpayers as well, you should do that too. (laughs) As they say all the time in economics, it depends. No, but what I mean by that is it's always surprising to me that we're able to find Indonesian cops. And, And I come from this very traditional background on transfer pricing. I've been there. I've done the comp searches. And by the way, a lot of analysts these days in transfer pricing, they don't they don't understand the challenges we used to have to go through to do comp searches, right? And read business description after business description and research and thousands of companies. And, and this is probably the same challenge that a lot of other practitioners have. You have this preconceived notion of what you kind of expect to find. And this is why I love EON, our technology, because it shows me more than what I was accustomed to. And she gives me more than what I I had ever experienced myself. That's why I'm surprised at the number of Indonesian comps 
that we're actually able to find in some situations because I wasn't as successful finding those local comps using the approaches that I was using, the, the traditional approaches to benchmarking. But now with technology, with Miona, with that AI, it's always very impressive that she's able to come back with at least a handful of comps in that specific jurisdiction that you could potentially work with. Yes, but I think in that answer, you might be giving some in our audience who are among tax leadership an idea of how to haze interns and new hirees into the future. You have to do comparable searches the hard way <laughs> by hand. Or at least uh, without calculator, I guess. Note to multinational companies everywhere. If you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer, cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. We now turn to our rapid fire, hardly our guest Mimi's first rodeo in this respect, but always our first question for our rapid fire round of questions. Are you ready, Mimi? I am ready. What mistakes do you see multinationals making again and again when it comes to their transfer pricing? Multinationals constantly underestimate, I think, the power of transfer pricing documentation, right? I think that people have considered transfer pricing in the past to be a little bit more of an afterthought and the documentation in and of itself be an afterthought. And so they discount the value of having a good report, having a good story to tell. And that is a mistake. And I think that's a, that's a mistake from my perspective because that document, it reminds me of, of that coming of age high school movie where, where one of the kids in the movie throws up their yearbook and she's like, these are memories held in time, people. <laughs> and uh, and that's, that's kind of what the transfer pricing report is. I kind of want to hold it up and tell them, this is your business held in time. <laughs> this is an accurate reflection of your facts and circumstances at that point in time. And when nobody else remembers it, this report will let you do that. Oh, man, I hope none of our audience tries to find my high school yearbook. <laughs> That's even worse than my Twitter account. Now, Mimi, what do you think will be or should be the first priority in terms of transfer pricing compliance for the 2020 tax year? Oh, well, definitely Indonesia. We're talking Mexico. I, I can I, I can talk about the country specific requirements, right? I mean, those are the those are the countries on the hit list as it stands. Um, but 
But, you know, just more of a general answer to that question is also companies are going to have to look at how COVID has impacted their business. And and yes, they probably already have a sense of that by looking at the data on a, on a quarterly basis, but they're going to have to look at that a little bit more holistically when they close their books or maybe even before they close their books for 2020 to to see if they, they need to make any any adjustments. And what is the most challenging part of preparing transfer pricing documentation for multinationals? It's always data, 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 data is challenging. And, and you know, but, but can I tell you, data is not just challenging for preparing transfer pricing documentation. So don't get me wrong. It's, data is a challenge in almost any exercise. It's like, what kind of data is available? Who holds the data? Where am I going to find that information? It's, I, I know you said most challenging in preparing PP documentation. My answer was data, but data is a challenge across all disciplines. So maybe I'll walk that back a little and say, you know what, for TP documentation explicitly, you know, once we solve the data problem, because we can solve that very easily. Just kidding. It's really not easy. <laughs> but, <laughs> that aside. Well, if we were to, yeah. If we were to solve that problem, then the next problem and the most challenging part specifically to transfer pricing would be keeping up with the local regulations and keeping up with the differences and the nuances between countries. What do you think is the biggest misconception about multinationals by tax authorities? Oh, where value is created and what actually creates intangible property that gives rise to excessive or not excessive, but give rise to more profit, a competitive advantage profit, right? I do think that tax authorities historically are going to take a a singular approach to where value is created to whatever is in their best interest. So whether or not they're just doing it out of ignorance or you know, out of selfishness, I'm not going to opine on that, but I do think that that is the biggest misconception about MEs. And what do you think is the biggest misconception about tax authorities by multinationals? You know, that's that's a harder question because I think I, I don't know if I necessarily would call it a misconception that tax authorities are completely unreasonable and that they are not going to care about what you produce what you hand over to them. Like, I, I think, I think that, I think the tax authority environment has changed. I think the caliber of people who are operating and uh, working with or working in a tax authority, I should say, um, I think that the caliber of people has increased, thereby creating more logical and reasonable professionals that are going to pay attention to what you've produced as an m So I do think that in some ways this there's perhaps a, a slight misconception that tax authorities are going to continue to just do whatever they want. And we want to thank Mimi Song once again for being on today's show. You can also catch Mimi on our TPU webinars where we teach transfer pricing in the modern world. We want to thank everyone at home for tuning in as well. If you haven't already, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. 
While you're there, don't forget to check out our sister program, The Fiona Show, hot off the press with all of your transfer pricing headlines and reg updates from across the world in under 10 minutes. My name is Matthew DeMello, and they let me host, edit, and engineer this podcast. Christy Clements is our associate producer. Mary Lynn Mitchum-Strom is our executive producer. We're going to catch everyone next week. Until then, stay safe and wear a mask. Wear a mask.